going on, everybody? This is Hank Shaw with the Hunt Gather Talk podcast, sponsored by Hunt to Eat and Filson. This episode is going to be all kinds of fun. We're going to get really esoteric really quick with an entire episode just about the Himalayan snowcock and ptarmigan in the lower 48 states of the United States. So these may be the most difficult birds to hunt in the lower 48. And yes, I can hear all you Alaskans say, yes, I've killed them with Nalgene's or, or kicked them with rocks or whatever. Well, the birds are quite different down here in America. So get ready. I'm going to be introducing my good friend Jim Mellencipher, who has hunted both birds. I have hunted ptarmigan, but not the Himalayan snowcock. It's a very, very rare breed of hunter who has been to the Ruby Mountains of Nevada to hunt these birds. And that is the only place that the snowcock lives in the United States. So without further ado, we're going to talk all things alpine, crazy birds at 10,000 feet, how to go about hunting them, what these birds are like when you finally get up there, hunting tips, gear guides, and of course, this being me, how to cook and eat these crazy birds. So without further ado, we'll take it away. Hey, Jim. Good to have you on the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am very, very glad to uh, get you on. And you uh, are, I think, unique among my bird hunting companions and someone who's actually not only hunted, but has shot and eaten a Himalayan snowcock. That's right. Which is a, I think it may be the hardest upland game bird to actually hunt in the United States. I will confess that that I've, I've hunted the bird twice. And the year that I was successful was my first year. And frankly, you know, it was just blind luck. So while it was a while it was a very, very challenging from a cardiovascular standpoint, um, I was crazy lucky. Now, my second year, not so much luck and, and way, way harder. So, um, yeah, it's a it's, it's quite an endeavor. And, uh, and I would, you know, anybody that's, that's, that's crazy, um, into upland birds, you got to try it at least once. And if you're serious about, about, you know, harvesting a bird, you're probably going to have to go way more than one time. Crazy, crazy. So, so tell the people out there, uh, you and I have known each other off and on for, wow, it's gotta be, it's gotta be pushing 10 years, I think. And we, I know we met, I believe at the first time at Pheasant Fest. Yeah, that's right. I'm I'm involved. I live in Western Kansas, and I'm involved with the the Kansas Governor's Pheasant Hunt. And we met at at one of the Pheasant Fests. I think it was Kansas City. And you're right. It was it was nine or ten years ago. But that's that's where we first met, and and obviously we've been uh, connected ever since. So yeah, I uh, I've enjoyed uh, getting to know you and and following you on uh, Hunt Gather Cook, and um, and it's been fun to hunt with you as well. Yeah, the uh, so Jim. If for those of you who uh, may recognize the name, Jim is not only the the brains behind the Kansas Ringneck Classic, which I've gone to and which uh, I will link in the show notes to a Project Upland video that they did of the Kansas Ringneck Classic. But uh, we've also he's also was my guide on the Great Chicken Chase. Apparently, this is something that you guys do all the time. But I was really really honored to be to the was it I guess the 2018 Chicken Chase. Or maybe it was a 2017 chicken chase. I think it was 2017 because it was it was before the book came out, before yes. uh, um, pheasant quail cottontail came or yeah came out. So exactly 2017. It's, it's Wyoming and Colorado, and it's a it's a kind of a race to see how many species you can collect. 
Yeah, you know, we've been doing it for seven or eight years now, and and it changes each year a little bit depending on on who wants to participate. So um, the year that, that you joined us, uh, the primary species that we were trying to get was the was the whitetail ptarmigan. So we we did that in Colorado, and then if you recall, we hunted some some blue grouse and some Colombian sharptail and um, even some sage grouse in Colorado, and then we jumped up into Wyoming and hot hunted some some uh, sage grouse up there and and common sharptail. So that was a that was a a, a big year, five different chickens in five days. Um, this year, as an example, we started over. Um, in Sar- the Saratoga area and hunted uh, sage grouse, blue grouse, then made our way over towards Lake Tahoe, or excuse me, towards uh, Jackson Hole and hunted rough grouse and blue grouse there and then doubled back to Cheyenne and hunted common sharptail. So four different chickens over the course of six or seven days. So some years uh, we even hunt prairie chicken in Kansas before or after the trip. One year I, when you could still hunt lesser prairie chicken, I actually hunted and harvested eight different uh, chickens, lesser and greater prairie chicken, uh, ptarmigan, rough grouse, blue grouse, common sharptail, Colombian sharptail, and sage grouse all over the the course of about 10 days. That's pretty amazing. September's a big month for chickens out west. That's a that's that's pretty amazing. I mean, that's I kept talking to people like, yeah, you know, there's who really really hunts these things, and like, well, you know, there's always Jim. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, I mean, what tell them tell, tell tell everybody what's on your license plate? Uh, WWCHXDN. And it is winner winner chicken dinner. <laughs> and you are the king of the wild chicken dinners. I love I love hunting chickens and and I I catch catch hell from some of my buddies especially the biologists who who you know I, we were actually up in uh, North Dakota just this last week um, the Sandhills in Nebraska and then up into North Dakota and uh, and I tell people I'm hunting chickens and they look at me in fact I had a, I got stopped in North Dakota by a, a game warden and he he saw that I had three rooster pheasants and. This was on Saturday, and he said, well, now you can go watch a football game. And I said, no, now I'm going to go chase chickens. And he looked at me kind of goofy and said, well, we don't have chickens in North Dakota. And I said, sure you do. you got sharp chickens, um, and that's that's what I'm going to go after is some sharp chickens. So if it's a grouse, to me it's a chicken, and I love hunting them. And both of the birds that we're going to focus on today are, are members of the grouse family, the, the white-tailed ptarmigan and the Himalayan snowcock. So – we want to focus a little bit of a background. So I spent a fair bit of time in Alaska, and when I talk to people up there about ptarmigan hunting, it's always kind of a, a chuckle and a laugh because everyone who lives in Alaska has a crazy story about killing either a rock or a willow ptarmigan with something not normal. Like my favorite is I have a, a friend named Jill who lives in Juneau who apparently chucked a Nalgene water bottle at a at a ptarmigan up in the in northern alaska and whacked it and then they ate it in the camp so i'm not sure that's a legal method of take but everyone up there is like hunting do you actually hunt ptarmigan you can kill them with rocks or with nalgenes or or anything there but in the lower 48 it is it is quite a bit different in terms of at the very least getting to the birds and i i'm gonna say that they're squirrelier in the lower 48 than they are in alaska 
You know, I, I will confess I've never hunted Alaska, so I I haven't had the opportunity to hunt any of the three species of uh, uh, ptarmigan that are up there. It's it's on my bucket list to get to Alaska and hunt willow and rock. Um, but my only experience in, in hunting ptarmigan is is Colorado. And I, I live in western Kansas now, but I was, I was born and raised and lived the first 48 years of my life in Colorado. So I live in Kansas, but I'll always be from Colorado. And, uh, you know, white-tailed ptarmigan are fairly common in the mountains of Colorado. But when, when I say fairly common, it's, it's tough to find them. Um, and you got to know how and where. Uh, but when you, when you get to the locations where they ought to be, it's just a matter of, of, of hunting and finding them kind of like prairie grouse are. So I, I have no experience of hunting them in, in Alaska, but I got plenty of experience, maybe too much experience hunting them in Colorado. They're an interesting bird. So the white tailed ptarmigan is the only ptarmigan that lives in the lower 48. And so far as I can tell, there are a number of places where there are remnant populations from the ice age and you know some in wyoming or some in montana some in i believe there's still a remnant population in the pecos wilderness as far south as new mexico and so they, they live on these weird sky islands with very very high alpine alpine tundra i guess at the top of mountains and then in the 1960s the various fish and game commissions of the western states decided that it was a really good idea to say, hey, you know, why don't we expand the range of this particular bird beyond the sky islands where they existed as, as it stood? And they brought them to California. They brought them to the Uinta Mountains of Utah. They brought them to Colorado. And as far as I can tell, the only states that you can still hunt them in the lower 48 are those places where they were introduced, plus Montana. So Idaho, Montana, Colorado, Utah, I don't know if they're in Nevada, but I do know that there's a very short season here in Northern California, too. Yeah, the only the only knowledge I have of, of people that have that have harvested ptarmigan are either Utah or Colorado. I know that the other states that you mentioned have short seasons, but I've never run across or met anyone that's even hunted them in those states, let alone um, killed a bird. Um, I do I do have a, a colleague or a, a connection, hunting connection that works for Pheasants Forever, um, who uh, who hunts them regularly in the Uintas um, in Utah and and hunts them fairly successful there. Uh, but that, he's the only guy I've known that's hunted them elsewhere um, other than Colorado. And frankly, I only know unless they've hunted with me i only know you know half dozen other people maybe that have hunted them in colorado so there's not there's not a lot of people that that pursue them for a, a variety of reasons but you know they'll they'll always be near and dear to me yeah i I've, I've hunted them in in california and i've not yet even seen a bird let alone shot one so it's it's a it's like a one week season it might even be a five day season and the limit is two birds and just two birds like you can't there's not even like the triple the daily bag limit deal like you have with most birds it's just the two and maybe 10 years ago yeah probably about 10 years ago the california fishing game put out a, a press release looking for ptarmigan hunters because they have no real grasp of how many birds there are are they still there you know, is there any hunting pressure on them at all? 
And I know of maybe a half a dozen people in California who's even tried for them. And I don't know a single person here who's actually shot one. Well, it, it's, it doesn't surprise me. But, uh, again, if somebody wants to shoot a whitetail ptarmigan and not, not make the trip to Alaska, uh, I, I think Colorado and Utah are pretty safe bets as long as you do a little bit of, of work ahead of time and, and you know, either – and it was, social media has changed hunting so much. There is so much information that's available um, to, for, for folks, whether it be – hunting specific sites on social media or or birding sites um on social media there's 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 great ways to gather knowledge and expertise but if somebody has the desire i think colorado and utah are the are the two prime states hey i'd like to take a moment to say that hunt to eat is a proud sponsor of this podcast which makes sense because i own and wear a lot of their shirts hats and other gear When you reach into your drawer to grab a shirt to wear to a barbecue or a conservation event, you always grab the same one, right? Well, you're about to find your new favorite tea. Head over to hunttoeat.com and check out their line of hunting and fishing lifestyle hats, hoodies, tees, and more. They're super soft, they're a great fit, and they're designed and printed in Denver, Colorado. Be sure to check out the new line of hunter, angler, gardener, cook apparel and use the promo code HANK10 for 10% off your first order. That's HANK10, H-A-N-K-10, and you get 10% off any hunter, angler, gardener, cook merchandise you feel like picking up and wearing to your next event. Thanks. So everybody, everybody listening to this is thinking about, hey, maybe I should do that. Maybe I should actually make that trip. And I've always described both uh lower 48 ptarmigan hunting as well as you know and, and you'll know more and we'll talk about snowcock in specific in a bit this is the sheep hunting of, of the bird hunting world you have to train for it absolutely absolutely and and not only not only train for it but if you're not um accustomed to altitude um then you've got to to plan your trip around adjusting to altitude um you know, I'm I'm fortunate. I uh, again being born and raised in Colorado, and I played football in college in in Gunnison, and you know the stadium that we played at or the field we played at in Gunnison was was is is widely known in 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 small colleges being the highest football stadium in the world. It's almost a it's like 7,800 feet um, wow. in elevation. So you know, I grew up and 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 hunted and and you know, other activities at altitude. So even though I've lived in Kansas now for almost 12 years, when I go home to Colorado, I don't, I don't have any problem adjusting to the altitude, but somebody that's coming from, you know, sea level or two or three, you know, hundred feet or two, 2000 feet elevation, whatever, if they're, if they're coming from, from that type of area, then they not only have to be in, in good shape from a cardiovascular standpoint, but they need to to be prepared from an altitude standpoint. Um, and generally, if you get to altitude for for a couple days before you start um, start anything aggressive from a cardiovascular standpoint, you should be fine. But you know, you'll recall the year that that you hunted with us. Yeah, um, Jordan. Yeah, one of one of my buddies. He got to, it was sad. He got within probably spitting from an elevation. Yeah. From an elevation standpoint, he was, he was less than a hundred feet of, of additional elevation, give or take. Um, and within a quarter mile of where we, where we shot ptarmigan, but 
you know, I, the, the one thing about altitude sickness is that there's nothing that can help you except going down. So when we knew when we knew that was what he was suffering, you know, I, I, I told him the only thing I can promise you is is the only way it will get better is to go down. So that's really from 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 my standpoint, not only being in good shape from a cardiovascular standpoint, but being being prepared for the altitude. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you. So I live in Folsom, California, and it's at a, an elevation of about 260 feet. But it's at the base of the Sierra Nevada mountains. So the year, and so in 2017, I knew that this hunt was coming up. And I knew that in general, whitetail ptarmigan do not live below 11,000 feet in really anywhere, except maybe, maybe some places up in, in Montana. But in Colorado and Utah and California and such, they're, they're 10,000 feet and above for sure. And I made a, I did two things. I, I, at the gym, I did that stairway to hell. You know, it's like an escalator that never stops. And that helped a lot in terms of just getting cardiovascular fitness. But then every chance I got, and it was, you know, almost once a week and definitely once every other week, I would get up as high as I could in the Sierra Nevada and just hike around and do, you know, I was actually scouting for deer and for mountain quail and for mushrooms. So I wasn't there just to hike, but I would make sure I was up there, up there, up there, up there. And I had no problem except for coming down. Coming down was, was, was the harder, you know, cause when we went up, it was some, it, it was like an endless stairwell, but coming down, uh, the loose rocks and I, that's when I got blisters. So I've joked with different people about the ptarmigan hunting and I, and I share with them that there's like, there's like three methods to hunting ptarmigan in Colorado. Um, but the people that, that I have taken um, that have it on their bucket list and, and have traveled to Colorado um, like you did, I, I make them work, right? So, so if you recall, we started at about 95. Yeah, it was about 95 or nine, um, under 10,000 feet. And we were fortunate. We got into um, we got into chickens at what maybe twelve and 12, a half. Yeah, twelve five. And it was about a it was about a two mile walk. Um, so there wasn't except for the very end. You know, it's it where we had a pretty good climb for the last quarter mile or so. It's a it's a pretty gradual. You know, to, to gain a thousand feet in a mile is not that difficult um, or unusual. Um, but you know, when, when people ask me about ptarmigan in Colorado, I, I share with them that there's really three ways to hunt them. You can do what we did. You know, there's 54 mountains in Colorado that are over 14,000 feet, and there's another 60 or 70 that are that are at 13,000 feet. So when you do the math, you know, that's that's 120 plus locations in the state of Colorado that 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 go well above timberline um and that's where ptarmigan are at as you said they're they're going to be anywhere from 11.5 to 12.5 or 13,000 feet and they change during the season but during during september and, and early october when when you generally hunt ptarmigan in colorado they're gonna be at that 12 12.5 maybe 13,000 feet so in colorado you know there's there's lots of places that have elevations that are that high and the majority of those as as you you know found out when you joined us and 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 when you did your research the majority of those locations are on national forest and almost all of them have some type of established hiking trail 
that that gets you to the to the top of those mountains. So whether it's the the Continental Divide Trail or whether it's a specific trail for a specific mountain, you do a little bit of research and you can find trails that start at at nine or ten thousand feet that you can park at. Many of them have established parking areas. And then you just hike to, to, to above timberline. So when I take people ptarmigan hunting, you know, that's that's how we do it. I'm I, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick a spot that I know and we'll we'll hike for for an hour and a half or two hours. You know, I also share with people if you wanna cheat, you know, there's there's several roads in Colorado. You can go to the top of Mount Evans, you can go to the top of, of Pikes Peak. Those are mountains that are over fourteen thousand feet. So you could drive above Timberline and those areas have pretty specific rules about where you can hunt. You know, you've got to be at least a, a half mile, I think it is, away from from the established roadway. But you could cheat and you could drive to the top of one of those mountains and you could you could then hike from the top of the mountain. Um, and if you worked hard, you probably could find ptarmigan at some point in time. And a lot of the birders that do the the uh, tours and, and want to see ptarmigan, especially in the springtime, that's what they do. They'll go over Vail Pass or they'll go over Loveland Pass and um, and they'll spot birds with their spotting scopes from a long distance. So that's really the, the second way to, to drive and, and, and then hike, you know, from a from a, an established roadway. I think that's cheating personally. And, and that's, you know, I've never even done it. So I I wouldn't know where to go other than than like the areas that I just spoke about. But um, and then the last, the, the third way that, that people hunt, hunt ptarmigan is they'll literally do, you know, backpacking excursions where, um, and a, a lot of guys will do this, or some guys will do this, uh, north of, of Rocky Mountain National Park. You can't, you can't hunt ptarmigan in Rocky Mountain National Park, but outside of the park you can, and there's some areas above timberline, um, that you can, that you can hike to. And so these people will, will, um, it's more like a snowcock hunt. They they will, you know, carry 50, 60 pound backpacks, um, areas like that. Uh, so so those are really the three ways. But but you know, like when when you were with us and and when I get when I get calls from people that want to hunt ptarmigans, I generally uh, know an area where we'll park at at 9,500 or 10,000 feet, and then we'll walk for a couple hours and get above timberline and and typically find chickens. It's a nice balance. I don't know that I really want to do a backcountry ptarmigan hunt at 13, 14,000 feet for three days. I mean, I suppose maybe, but I, I like the fact that, you, you know, it's a, it is a day hunt, but it's also a very difficult day hunt. Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to guess that September is probably your month. Yeah. The, in, in Colorado, there's, they actually have it broken down in, in a couple, um, areas, uh, man, hunting management areas. So the the locations that I generally hunted, it's about a three week season, and it and it typically opens on a Saturday. It always opens on a Saturday that's somewhere around the 10th of September, give or take. So whatever that closest Saturday is, it generally opens then. Then it's open for about three weeks. Gotcha. There there's other areas in the state that the season actually goes all the way into November. Mm, like the snowcock, the, the snowcock season goes into November, which is right. insane. Right. Well, the, the thought process is I've never even seen a ptarmigan that wasn't brown and white. Right. 
either have seen ptarmigan in in April or May or June when I when I was just hiking, staying in shape and, and climbing mountains. And of course, those ptarmigan were white, turning brown. Or when you hunt in September, they're brown, turning white. So, so I've never even seen a fully brown ptarmigan or a fully white ptarmigan. But the reason that, that and it's especially in the southern part of the state, so down near Uray and Telluride and Durango, um, down in that southwestern part of Colorado, people hunt ptarmigan all the way into November. And the thought process is if you want to harvest a bird that, that is mountable, so, you know, the bird has, has gone through all of their molting and, and, and all the feathers are hardened. So your taxidermist can, can do what he needs to do with it easily. And the bird's totally white and they've got the big red, you know, eye comb. Those, those birds you've got to shoot in, in, you know, November, late October and November. Gotcha. And one of these, one of these years I'm going to do that. Part, part of my problem is, you know, that, that's when I'm chasing, um, grouse, uh, sharp-tailed grouse, prairie chickens. And ditch parrots. Uh, yeah, and pheasants. <laughs> um, and, in, and in fact, hell, this Saturday, uh, quail and pheasant season opens in Nebraska. So it's tough for me to, to, to take a trip to southern Colorado um, looking for a ptarmigan that's totally white when I can, when I can be hunting so many other species. But, um, but one of these years I'm going to do it because I would love to have a, I'd love to have an all white, you know, beautiful ptarmigan mounted. They are cool. I mean, the one, the one experience I definitely remember, there's two things I remember about our hunt. One, I could not see them on the ground. Like you could see them on the ground and you're like, they're right there. And I'm like, they're right there. I'm like, I don't know. Just let them fly. I'll shoot them when they fly. I can't, I can't see them. Don't wait for me. And, and then the second piece to that is that they are not the most, the fiercest flyers. Like they, there are a lot of birds that I have hunted, notably any quail that is significantly more difficult to hit in the air than uh, a white-tailed ptarmigan. So once they got flying, like I could not, I could not, you're just looking right at them. And I'm like, I they they look like boulders and then they flew and then but and then it was pretty easy at least for me and i ended up getting a limit that morning which was which i think is the it might be you you tell me if that's the case where if you can find them it's not overly difficult to actually bring them to ground like, yeah they're they're not they're they're not the most challenging bird to hit and and frankly you know they're they're not we, we hunt a lot of I guess they call them dusky now, but I'm an old guy. We've always called them blue grouse. But you know how that you know how the forest grouse um, have a, a reputation of being kind of dumb and and will just walk away from you or run away from you. Ptarmigan are, are are not a lot different. So so yeah, the the challenging part of 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 ptarmigan is not hitting them when they flush. It's getting to them and finding them. Um, but once you get to them and find them they're they're not that challenging to hit they frankly they'll fly sometimes they won't fly very far and you can you can you know get them up again if if you weren't within shooting distance when they first flush kind of like huns are yeah but the 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 bottom line is the challenging part is getting to them and finding them um but to your point once you find them um they're not they're not that difficult to bring down and i'm at the age where shooting a limit isn't you know, as important to me today as it was, you know, 25 or 30 years ago, 40 years ago. But most people that 
that I've taken ptarmigan hunting, um, it's a bucket list deal. And they're just so excited when they get one, you know, shooting two or three. Um, the limit in Colorado was three. Shooting a, a second or a third bird is just icing on the cake. Um, but they're not very big. No. So, so from a culinary standpoint, if you're, if you're going to try to have a meal with ptarmigan, um, by all means, you better do everything you can to get a limit. Cause yeah, they, it's one per person pretty much. Yeah, and and you you better have some side dishes. Cause right. Yeah, you, you know, one roast ptarmigan, like one by itself, like plucked and whole. Um, and we can talk about plucking in a minute because I I know how much you love to tell that story. Um, <laughs> but let's talk gear for a second. So I use a twenty gauge over and under, uh, a Franchi Veloce, uh, which was a great gun for that. And I would think I was using, I don't know, I I actually think I was using like like heavy shot sixes or something crazy like that. But I, I, I mean, my guess would be sixes, sevens would be a good shot size and, and really any gun that you're comfortable carrying off the, up the side of a mountain. Yeah. I, I, I'm i uh, I'm an old man. So uh, I have a, a 20 gauge. I, I, it's as light a gun as I can carry. It's a, a Benelli and it weighs about, I think five pounds, six ounces. So from my perspective, lighter is better. I've never been a big sling guy, although you know when, when we started hunting snowcock, I did start putting a sling on my gun. But um, whatever whatever gun you're comfortable with, 12 or 20, I would just say that that be prepared to carry it or, or have a sling at least for a good portion of the of the hunt, just just to make it easier on you. And in in terms of shot. Yeah, I, I I use light lighter sixes, you know, two and three quarter inch lighter sixes, the same as I use for sharp tail and and blue grouse and you know any chickens that I hunt in in September or October, I'm generally shooting lighter sixes. But you're right, um, a seven and a half um, would would work fine, and and hell, frankly, um, an eight probably work, would work fine. But um, for ptarmigan, yeah, because they're not for very big. Right. They're basically like a big Hungarian partridge, if you're, if you, or a chucker. They're they're bigger than a chucker, but only a little bit. Yeah, I, I I think once you get them broke down, I think they're like a big pigeon, basically, both from a well, color yeah, standpoint. Because they look like a big pigeon. Right. Exactly. In terms of gear, I remember, you know, I had, I don't even think I brought, you know, I got this cool pair of Filson brush pants, like the tin cloth ones, but I'm pretty sure I didn't even. I didn't even wear those for that because it's just, it's all above the tree line. And, you know, the boots, the boots I remember was the biggest deal. Like I have a really, really nice pair of like heavy mountain boots. And that I remember being super important because there's so much loose rock way up high. I wanted something that held my ankles in. Other people wear lightweight stuff, but I I needed something to kind of lock my, my ankles in. So otherwise, because there's shifting rocks everywhere where you go up there. Yeah, I, I, you know, both both from a from a pant or or um, shirt standpoint and and coat standpoint and and boots, um, you know, I, ptarmigan hunting is like is like hunting and mountain climbing at the same time. Now most of the most of the climbing that we did was on established trails. But you're right. There are some areas where it becomes a little bit more challenging, and there's loose rocks. And then when you go off trail, which which obviously we had to to, to go find the birds, and then you're you're basically walking up this tundra slope. You need really good good footwear. Now today, 
they make they make fairly light waterproof stuff that people use when they're when they're climbing mountains um, that are that are great, give you good support um, and are and are lightweight. Um, but that's you know that's what I've recommended. Now I've I've hunted ptarmigan in Colorado in in shorts um, and, <laughs> and, and a t-shirt because you know you it's sometimes it's the 10th of September. 15th of September and and even up at that altitude it might be 50 60 degrees and you're so close to the sun that it that you know I I think it's way way warmer but I've also you got to work I, in your tan too yeah exactly but I've also I've also hunted ptarmigan in Colorado on the 15th of September where I'm in a blizzard so you know, you you just and I think this is what I told you before you came out. You just got to be prepared because I can't tell you what it's going to be like. Um, you can look at weather forecasts, and obviously, you know they're better today than they used to be. But you might be you might be at at twelve or thirteen thousand feet, and and it still might be fifty degrees and sunny and and no wind. Or you could be at the same spot. And have a 25 mile an hour wind with with corn snow or you know freezing rain or heavy wet snow. Um, yeah. You just you just never know. So you you've got to be prepared for any of those. Yeah, I mean that's true in the, at any really high mountaintop. I mean even just days before I went on that trip with you, I was hiking in the Sierra Nevada and I was at the top of a 10,000 foot mountain and you can, you know how you can feel the lightning coming. There's that weird sort of static electricity thing. Absolutely. Uh, I felt that and immediately went down as far as I could. And, and it started lightning thunder and lightning in, within minutes. And so it, it had been a sunny and fairly warm day, 15 minutes before that. It's not as, it's not as tough in Colorado in September but if you're on those same mountains that where we were hunting ptarmigan in in June, you know May, June, July, they teach you to be off those mountains by noon or one o'clock because it's inevitable that that storms are going to roll into those mountains in Colorado in the afternoon. Uh-huh. And when they when they come in, they come in fast. Um, I've been at we were we were above Aspen. Um, this was many many years ago, but we were above Aspen on a mountain called Snowmass. And we were at almost 14,000 feet and we saw a storm coming in and, you know, I, I thought I was going to die that day. Um, lightning and hail and um, it's it's scary to be in a storm like that at, at 13, 5 or 14,000 feet. But it's not as tough. It, it's, it's not as typical to have those storms in September. Um, it, it's more common to have the wind and cold and snow. Gotcha. Uh, Speaking of wind and cold and snow. Tell us about snowcock. So let me start by giving some people an idea of what this bird is. It's a it's a very large, very large grouse species native to the Himalaya. So there's the Himalayan snowcock, which is in the Ruby Mountains of Nevada. And then there are several other snowcock that live in Asia but do not live here. So the Fish and Game Commission in 1961 decided that they were going to because nevada if you've ever hunted it it's it's not a game rich state so in the 60s they decided that they wanted to introduce this himalayan grouse interestingly only to the ruby mountains i'm not entirely sure why just there it might it might be the only super super high mountains in nevada but at, at any rate it's a pheasant cousin and it can go up it can be up to seven pounds which so 
the very big snowcock can be about the size of a very big sage grouse. And it looks kind of like a gigantic chucker. Uh, not the same, but it's got it's very it's more chucker like than any other game bird in the United States. When and the chucker are also from Asia. They're from the Caucasus Mountains in Georgia. So they started to bring them here from Pakistan. And the the first bird was brought in 1961, and they brought 2,000 birds over from Pakistan. And from 1963 to 1979, they were doing introductions in in the Ruby Mountains of Nevada, and they don't know how many are up there. So the season for for snowcock started in 1980 and nobody really knows how many snowcock are up there, but the range is anywhere from 500 to 2000. So they are a, like everybody knows where this bird is. It's in the Ruby mountains. And the, the trick is actually to get to them. And I got some stats from the Nevada fishing game. No season since 1980 has there ever been more than 23 birds shot in an entire season. And the average on any given year is two birds for an entire season by all hunters into the high of 23. And it's an average of eight a year, and which is fascinating. Crazy. I, uh, so you're, I, at a rare, you're at a rare club, my friend. Well, I, like, like I said, you know, I'd rather be lucky than good. Um, I had never even heard of the bird until about three years ago. And I've got this group of, of guys that I hunt with, um, and you've you've hunted with with three or four of them. These guys are are, are these old biologists. I'll I'll be sixty. These guys are sixty three, sixty four, sixty five. So they're all three or four years older than me, and they've all known each other since their college days. They all had connections to the University of Wyoming in in one fashion or another. So they all either did their undergrad work or their grad work at the University of Wyoming. So Really good guys, hard hunters, great shape. Um, you know, we we hunt well together. So one of them, Alex, had had learned about this bird, and and when he started started talking about it, I, I thought he was just you know full of crap. I didn't. I I thought he was it was all a joke because you know you've met Alex, and that mm-hmm. that, would, that wouldn't be unlike him, right? To, come up with some story so i yeah, i would have to go hunt the pink junkadoo it's only yeah. on this mountain in nevada <laughs> that would be alex exactly so uh so after after doing some research and figuring out that he wasn't that he wasn't kidding we uh we put together a trip last year in september so so 2018 um september we we did our trip to the ruby mountains um and there were four of us and uh, thanks for the invite, by the way. I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, you've you've said that a couple times. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, what what amazed me and I and again, I, we mentioned social media earlier. The, the fact that that the most that's ever been harvested is 23 and the average is is seven or whatever number you said or two, I guess. Eight is the uh, average. OK, so that the, 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 the point is. I think those numbers are going to increase because we've hunted them now two years, and and I'm telling you the the popularity of this bird has increased significantly. And and I think that the state of Nevada would tell you this. You have to you have to have a hunting license, obviously, and they sell they're 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 pretty pretty 
cheap actually compared to some other states i think i think my total license for hunting six days this year was like 68 bucks and and by the way that includes fishing but um it's it's pretty economical but they they keep pretty good records obviously you you got some good numbers and you have to have a permit they don't they don't charge you for the himalayan snowcock permit so you've got to have a a, a daily bird license and, and for how many every days you're going to do it or you could buy an annual but you have to buy this bird permit and or get a bird permit they don't charge you and then you've got to to fill out a survey over the course of of the you know the three or four months after hunting season and so that's obviously how they're keeping track of of how many people hunt them and, and how many birds are harvested is through this permitting process but i would venture to say that that um the popularity of of hunting those birds and the fact that it's going to get on on more people's bucket lists um, is, is going to increase the number of hunters there. And, you know, there was a, there was a podcast uh, or not a podcast, uh, um, project Upland did a video um, they did. on, on uh, snowcocks. And, and, you know, the, one of the guys that, that did that video who now works for pheasants forever, I know was successful hunting them again this year. Um, so the, whether it be social media or whether it be, um, you know, web-based uh, productions that you get on YouTube or whatever. I think more and more people are going to hunt them, um, and and there's really there's only a couple spots to go to, so you're you're going to see more pressure. Um, that that's the bad news. The good news is once you get there, there's really a lot of areas to go to if you're willing to 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 hike and and hunt. There's plenty of areas to go to. Um, we only saw this year, we only saw one other hunter where last year we saw, you know, 13 or 14 hunters. Oh, wow. But we, we packed in quite a bit further this year and, and, uh, and only saw one other, I, 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 let me back up. We did run into two as we were heading out. So only saw three other hunters this year as far back as we went in. Is it physically more difficult than, uh, ptarmigan hunting? Yes, only because you know, you're carrying a 60, 50, 60 pound backpack with, with all of your gear, you know, tents, sleeping bags, um, pads, food, uh, water, you know, uh, or filter systems, et cetera. So, so yeah, it's, it's more challenging because we packed in and we camped. Um, now if you were to, you know, we talked about this when when I said some people hunting ptarmigan do the same thing. Well, then then the challenges would be similar. But this year, as an example, and and you know anybody can do the research. Um, Lamoille is the is the Lamoille Canyon is where most people start from, and you can either go up to Island Lake or up to Lamoille. Um, and and there's a there's a it's called the Ruby Crest Trail. So there's tons of places that you can pack into different mountain ranges or, or specific ranges where you can hunt. Um, lots of areas that you go to where you won't run into other people, but you're all, you know, you're basically starting in the same general area. But what, again, what made it difficult for, for me is the fact that I got to carry everything that I'm going to be using. Now, lots of people backpack. And, and if you're, a, if you're an experienced backpacker and used to carrying all that stuff and, and then you, it, it won't be that much of a struggle, but, but it's, for me, it was tougher than ptarmigan hunting because it wasn't a one day hunt. It was a five, six day hunt. That is the true backcountry upland hunt. I mean, and plus you're, you're always above 10,000 feet, right? Um, pretty much. Uh, we backpacked in this year about seven miles, give or take. 
and we went over two mountain passes. Um, so we got to packing in, we got to an elevation of almost 11,000 feet and started at like 9,500 or 900 or 9,000. So, um, you know, we, we probably gained close to 5,000 elevation on the up and down going over two passes to get to where we camped. And then of course, from, from where we did our base camp, then you, you know, you get up at two 30 or three o'clock in the morning and, and climb to basically the top of a, of a range near where you're camping, um, to hunt them. So, so you glass them, right? Well, I, again, I've only done it twice and there's probably people that are, that are way more knowledgeable. The year that I was successful, um, the first year, we had we actually hiked in on like the 28th or 29th of August and did some scouting. And so September 1st was the opener. I knew where I was going to hunt. I knew, you know, I knew where I was going to sit, had a plan in place. Now, like most hunting, you know, all good plans. Uh, it was it was dark and it was tough to find where I wanted to be. So we got, Alex and I were hunting together. We got as far in as we could, as far up on this mountain as we could, hiked for maybe hour and 45 minutes. Um, and then we got, we got rim locked, right? We, we, we were on a, basically on a, on a cliff edge and, and couldn't continue going forward. Um, our only option was to backtrack. And, you know, it was getting to be close to, to shooting light. So we just made the decision to hunker down. And as soon as we did, uh, we started he hearing birds. And it's the, it's the, it's the most unique thing I, I've ever experienced while hunting. I'm in this big bowl at about, I don't know, close to 11,000 feet, hunkered into a, to, to a cliff. And the noise that that the snowcock make one of the noises the snowcock make reminded me of a cow elk calling for a calf that's the only way i can describe it so mm. if, if you're if you're an elk hunter and and you know when a, a cow is calling for a calf that's the sound that these snowcock make um and and we had this going on all around us and it's like this 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 amphitheater if you will i mean it was like this perfect um, acoustical setting where you could hear it, you know, below you, you could hear it to the right, you could hear it to the left. And, and all the research we had done, people told us that, you know, if you get a chance to skillet shoot one, do it. And, and I understand why now, because once you see a, once you see a snowcock, snowcock fly, you, you get while, while you, while you shoot them on the ground, if you can. So we're sitting in this cliff area um, we had mountain goats above us, uh, big, big Billy, maybe 20 yards to the left of me and then and then went over this ridge above us. But as as we're sitting there, my buddy Alex, we're hearing birds all around us. My buddy Alex says, I think there's one below us. And I got my glasses and I'll be I'll be damned if it this snowcock was was maybe 35, 40 yards below us and just kind of walking on the rocks. And he went out of sight. There was a, an outcropping that he that he went under, and and so we lost his sight. And then he emerged again, and it was it was just it was reaction. There was no conversation between Alex and I. Um, I'll never hear the end of it. But I just picked up my shotgun and shot it. And uh, so it's like that uh, that Colorado sage grouse that you both jointly shot. 
Yeah, I shot that sage <laughs> I definitely killed that sage grouse. I will go to, yeah. Anyway. But you're not bitter. No, no, no. That, you know, because that on that trip, that would have been the Colorado Grand Slam. Ptarmigan, right. blue grouse, mountain sharp tail, and, uh, and I know, it's rainy and horrible and moody. I'm like, you know what? I'm done. I'm going to sit and, you know. Look at the back of my eyelids while you guys flog the wet rain for a sage hen. Well, I still believe I killed that sage hen. Anyway, um, so so this this snowcock just basically, I shot it 35, 40 yards below me. I I was using my 20 gauge. I did have the shot that I size that I was using. I was using some some turkey shot, and I had my full choke in. So. you know, 35, 40 yards was, was perfect distance for that gun and that ammunition. And I, you know, I hit the snowcock and it rolled and then it just kept rolling. Oh no. And this bird rolled about 150 yards down. Uh, it just kept tumbling down. I would say cliff, but it really wasn't a cliff. Crazy, crazy slope. But the, but this bird just kept going down and down and down and and it got to a point where it stopped. Now, you couldn't see it. I knew I knew basically where the bird ended, his roll, but I certainly couldn't, even with good good uh, binoculars, I couldn't see the bird from where I was sitting. So I told Alex, I said, I- I'm going to start down. You need to stay here and, and don't take your eye off where we think that bird stopped, where that bird landed. Uh, on the roll. Well, it took me over 30 minutes to get down this this cliff area, and I, I you know worked my way down. I got down to the area where where I thought the snowcock would be, and of course I can't find it. So I look back up, and now I can't even see Alex. Oh wow! Because the 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 color of the rocks and and the fact that he's wearing camo um so finally finally i can i find alex and he starts giving me hand signals and he got over exactly he got me within about three feet of where that bird was um and and the the great news is the bird didn't get damaged too much rolling down that hill you know, I, I hear of people since since we've done this, I've heard of people that, you know, they either lose a bird, never find it, never retrieve it, um, or the bird is 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 so damaged that whether it be trying to mount it or from a culinary standpoint, it's it's of no value, um, which is sad. But um, yeah, it was it was blind luck. You know, the the fact that first time ever hunting them, opening morning, five minutes into shooting light, I killed a snowcock is. Um, it was like winning the lottery. Yeah, I mean, it's it's even luckier than me getting a limit the first time I ever hunted ptarmigan. Absolutely. So you, you I weren't hear, lucky. You were with someone skilled. That's how well. You were that's jumping. that's not wrong. Uh, <laughs> so the the thing the I think and correct me if I'm wrong, but the reason why you needed to be there at shooting light is because from what I know about the Himalayan snowcock. They hang out where they're going to hang out, and then right in the beginning, a flock of them, because they're a flocking bird like chuckers, they will fly down somewhere and then spend much of the rest of their day foraging back upwards. 
so and so what they they they're looking for seeds and berries and grass and bugs and things just like all the, the different grouse do and so that's the trick is to like because they're all going to fly down and then apparently they they are uh, in a flock separate so they're not tight like chuckers but they'll be all around and kind of working their way back up during the day yeah in the in the two years i've hunted them i've never seen more than five or six in a in a general area so so i don't sense that they're like chucker or huns or or quail where they're like in a covey but but yes the the my experience is that that they're they're high that they fly down and then they work their way back up um so if you're if you're at a lower elevation but you're you're looking for birds and you're you're watching and and viewing the um you know the cliff areas and and the rocks and and so forth it's not uncommon this year opening morning we had we had backpacked in and 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 we're pretty tired and so the the first morning that we hunted we didn't get up at at 2 30 or 3 and hike up the mountain um we just got up and had coffee and a little bit of breakfast and then we started scoping the the ridges and we actually counted six different birds um, within maybe a 25 or 30 yard area um, on this ridge um, and in fact this year although we didn't didn't harvest a bird i saw 19 different snowcock um, hmm. on the on the trip and i say 19 it's it's possible that first day we counted six on the ridge line and then when we went to hunt them we kicked up birds that could have been some of those same six that we'd seen earlier in the in the morning so maybe it wasn't a total 19 separate birds but i had 19 sightings um or we as a group had 19 sightings over over a four-day hunt Hmm. Um, but uh you know you're you're either you're either up on one of those ridges uh before sun up and you see the birds fly down and then you put a plan together to try to intercept them as they're walking back up or if you don't see birds fly down basically we would get to the to the top of one of these ridges um and and the area that we camped we had maybe four different areas that we could hunt um because snowcock are notorious for for if you blow them out of an area they're they're you know they might it only may take them five minutes to fly or less to fly across a valley but you and i it would take us two days to walk mm. um and they're notorious for getting, you know, blown out and, and not coming back for days. Um, so you've got to pick an area where you can hunt two or three different ridges or, or mountains. Um, but you either you either spot them when they're coming down. This is my perception, my, my experience. You either see them fly down and then you try to intercept where they're going to come back up. Or, or in my case, one flew down and and made the mistake of walking you know within 40 yards underneath us um as it began it's it's you know search for food and so forth or or you start at a higher elevation and slowly work those slopes back and forth you know losing elevation as you go and hoping that that what's going to happen is you're going to come over a little knoll or ridge or outcropping and you're going to you're going to flush them by surprise, kind of like, you know, that's kind of my experience hunting um, chucker. Right. You're more successful, you know, coming over the top of something or over a ridge. So twice this year, 
I busted pears that were feeding and and I came over little knolls or little outcroppings and and the birds were probably 75 or 100 yards away so they weren't they weren't within shooting distance unfortunately frustrating but, well but it was cool it was cool oh. to see him it's cool to see him fly it's kind of like you know I I I'm not a big eastern uh rough grouse hunter but I, but you hear stories of people you know oh I had a great day I I heard 19 and I saw three and and I actually got a shot at one and but man what a great day I heard 19 well that's that's kind of the way I I've you know and maybe I'm spoiled because I because uh, I've harvested one and 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 will always have a snowcock to my name but um, but seeing them is is pretty special from my standpoint for sure well it you actually. It didn't sound like you mounted your bird. It sounded like you uh, you picked and ate it up on the mountain. Well, you know the taxidermist that I work with won't mount anything that's that's you know not hardened up. And uh, and the bird that I shot was very very young. We ran into another hunter, and when he heard that I shot a bird, he asked if he could if he could see it, and I pulled it out of my backpack. And he kind of laughed and he said, that's the smallest snowcock I've ever seen in my life. The snowcock, I, the snowcock I shot was, was like a big pheasant. It was probably three and a half pounds, mm. um, three pounds maybe. And uh, so it was a young bird. So be it. I'm proud I, I, I killed a snowcock. But I knew that, I knew that my taxidermist wasn't going to be able to mount it. Now, I've since learned that there's a guy over in Reno that's that's an expert at mountain snowcock and is really really good at 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 taking care of the bird that hasn't been hardened you know that the feathers aren't hardened um or that's been damaged so if if i'm ever fortunate enough to harvest another one i i would like to to have it mounted but no we uh we we cleaned the bird and and ate it in camp that night on a jet boil you said yeah so in 2018, when we were up there, they had a fire ban, and um, and the only way you could uh, could cook was on a jet boiler or a, a camp stove, you know, a, a small backpacking type stove. Gotcha. There was no there was no open fires. There was no you know you you couldn't do anything other than than uh, cooking on a little camp stove. So the only thing we had was a, a jet boiler. Now I I had brought tortillas and I had also brought some seasonings because we knew we were going to be fishing and thought that okay well you know somehow we'll figure out how to cook these little brook trout while we're up there. So I had some seasonings and some tortillas and and uh, you know you eat when you're backpacking having a tortilla is pretty good with peanut butter or something. So we we actually skinned i saved all the i saved the wings and the tail feather and 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 as much of the uh the pelt of the bird as i could but we we then you know boned it out and we used the jet boiler to cook that fish so we just put a little bit of fish or the bird i'm sorry that well we did both um but not the, bird, the same not in the same dish not the same not in the same pot at the same time now we cooked that snowcock in the jet boiler little bit of seasonings kind of poached it if you will and then we uh basically shredded the meat and ate it on tortillas and i i tell you what i've heard this from others and i would love to have the opportunity to eat a snowcock in a in a in a real setting but it was amazing and i mean maybe part of it was because we were on top of a mountain 
But right. it was a, it was an amazing bird to eat. Very very white, um, quail like or or rough grouse like flesh. Very very light in color. Um, even though they even though they walk up the hill, um, their legs were nothing like a, a pheasant leg or a wild hmm. turkey. They were uh, very very tender. The thighs thighs and legs were light, just like the breast. It was they were it was a great bird to eat. Not that that jet boiling would be the preferred cooking method for the future. But, um, and and, you know, I wish I'd have harvested that bird and, and done it early enough to have you do a jet boiler uh, recipe for for snowcock in, in your book. But maybe it may be on your next edition. There you go. It's a very rare experience. I'll get up there at some point and, uh, you know, we'll see. Hopefully there won't be a fire ban when I'm up there so I can at least roast it. Yeah, this year, this year we didn't, there were only three of us that were able to go this year and we did not, um, we did not, again, we saw 19 snowcock, we didn't harvest one, but we did, um, my buddy Jeff or Jim shot a, uh, a blue grouse while we were up there and there was no fire ban. And so we, uh, we had some blue grouse, uh, while we were hunting up in camp this year, which was, this, which is enjoyable, but, uh. Yeah, that is my favorite grouse. It's a blue grouse. I think people say rough grouse are the best. I, I think a blue grouse is every bit as good as a rough grouse, and there's more of it. I exactly. Mean, they're a, they're a bigger exactly. bird. It's so, like a it's like a difference between a speckle belly goose and a pintail. They're very similar in flavor, except a speck is seven pounds. Yeah, and and in this case, more is better. Hey, I'd like to take a minute to thank the CC Filson Company for sponsoring this podcast. Filson is the original Alaska Outfitter. They started in 1897 outfitting miners for the gold rush on the Klondike. And ever since then, they have been committed to making the best equipment available. I know I've worn Filson for 20 some odd years, both in the field and just around town. I am committed to their Upland Game Gear. I think it's the best. It stands up to everything and it lasts forever. Be sure to check out Filson's Holiday Gift Guide at filson.com. For all your hunter, angler, gatherer gift needs, they have awesome stuff, not only for Upland, but for walking around town gear, travel stuff, as well as really good stuff for deer and duck hunting. So check them out at filson.com. So I want to kind of finish up by just running, because you and I both eat in ptarmigan more, more commonly. And one interesting side note for people listening is if you, you can actually buy something very close to a ptarmigan in the in mail order so d'artagnan d'artagnan is a a, the a purveyor of not only farmed meats but they are allowed to sell british game to the american market so you can buy this online and and i'll put a link in the show notes you can buy what they are calling scottish grouse well the scottish grouse that they're selling is really a willow ptarmigan and it's a dark meat and it's 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 gamey. It's strong. It's a strong meat. And and I have found that it's very similar to these white tailed ptarmigans that you and I have hunted. And that I think the singular thing about a, a, a ptarmigan, at least in Colorado, is that they are they're distinctive. It's a very dark meat. They're not terribly big. And it's a it's a strong but not unpleasant flavor. It's it's not a neutral like a pigeon. Is a pretty neutral red meat bird. Uh, ptarmigan is not. The, it's been challenging to find really good recipes for them, and I've looked primarily in Scandinavia. So Iceland, in Scandinavia, cook a lot of ptarmigan. 
and then the British, uh, you know, if you the British grouse. So the, you know, the famous the famous grouse that's on the whiskey. That's basically a ptarmigan. It's a red meat bird. So another another link that I'll put in the show notes is is Jim living in Kansas on this ptarmigan hunt brought a thing, an amazing thing, a bread <laughs> item, and he calls it beer rocks. I'm like, well, what the heck is a beer rock? And like, it's like a burger and kraut and it's in a bun. I'm like, I must eat one. And I think I ate like six of them and they were amazing, even though they were squashed. And like, I didn't care. They were fantastic. And they kept for two, three days in the truck. And I'm like, I must learn about this thing. And so, you know, Jim set me on the path to creating beer rocks, which is basically imagine a bun, a really easy dough to make stuffed with you typically onions and kraut and then some sort of meat product. Well, it is phenomenal for not only sharp tail grouse, but for these ptarmigan. And it's one of my favorite things to do with this particular bird. You know, not that I get ton, tons of them, but I would be interested to hear. I think, didn't you serve ptarmigan at the at the event that we did in the run up to the Ringneck Classic? You know, they 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 weren't ptarmigan because, um, of course, I think all the ptarmigan that we had harvested the year before I gave to you. Uh, didn't have any myself, um, but we used the prairie grouse. So oh, yeah. So same recipe, um, the same recipe that you that you created after after that trip, but we used prairie grouse. So it was a combination of, of sharp tail and, and prairie chickens. And we had had a, a really successful year last year um, up in the Sandhills in Nebraska in, in early October, uh, hunting sharp tail and, and prairie chickens. Um, two or three of us had gone up a couple times. So we used the prairie grouse, but basically the same recipe that you created, um, but we used the sharp tail and the prairie chickens. And the distinction that, that in it, you know, I, I didn't get it until I, until I did, was when we make beer rocks here, you know, you cook the meat ahead of time and then you, and then you put it all together and bake the, the bread. Well, you know, as, as everybody, I'm sure, or most people that are listening to this, to this podcast know, you, you don't want to overcook wild game. So the interesting thing that, that, that you had done on your recipe was we, we used raw meat and it just cooked, um, as the, as the, the bread dough was cooking in the oven. So it, it, it's a, a perfect use from my perception. It's a perfect use for for some of those birds that you would consider um, tougher from a culinary standpoint, just because of the strength of the flavor, the the darkness of the meat and the strength of the flavor. You know, I'm used to I'm used to doing stir fries and that type of thing with sharp tails, and uh, and making beer rocks with them is a great alternative. So I'm I'm certain it would be good with the with the ptarmigan. So what is what? How have you historically cooked your ptarmigan? Um, I either cook them like a dove. Um, I'll take the hind quarters. First of all, I don't, I've never plucked them. I've always, <laughs> I've always skinned them. I'm not, the plucky. I, I plucked them. I plucked I'm, them in the, uh, in the hotel room as a matter of fact. I, I, I know you did. And I still can't believe there were no feathers in that room when you were done. So a side um, note. So this funny story. So Jim, uh, has a history in the hotel business. So we get back from this hunt and I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm over the moon. Right. Cause you know, I've got, I had my three, ptarmigan and then and then you gave me the one that you shot 
So I had four. So, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of one per and it's just me and Holly at home. I'm like, sweet, we can do two great recipes. It's going to be fantastic. I got to pluck these birds. And I think it was a couple days later. I think I kept them cold and, and I'm going to pluck these birds. And she's like, well, where are you going to pluck them? Like, you don't want to pluck them in the parking lot. Oh, no, no, I'm going to pluck them in the hotel room. He's like, no, you're not. Like, yeah, of course I am. It's like, no, no, you're not. It's like, look, I'm in the hotel business. That is a super douchey thing to do to the people who have to clean up the rooms. It's just, no, a thousand times no. I'm like, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. So they go out. I think you guys go out for a beer or something or food or some, some such like that. And so I start and I basically am plucking it directly into the garbage bag in the, in the bathroom. Um, or no, no, it's, it's actually next to TV because football's on. And so there's at the end of it, there's maybe five feathers in the that escaped the plastic bag. And I pick each one up and put it in the plastic bag and close the plastic bag. And you're just standing there at me looking like, how is that possible? <laughs> I never I never would. I would have lost any bet. I would have I would have bet that, you know, my credit card was going to be charged one hundred and fifty dollars for for excess, you know, feathers in the room. But it was amazing. You, it's it just you are definitely the, the plucking Jedi. I will you <laughs> definitely are that. No, I um, historically we've we've either cooked them like you would a dove. So I would I would take the breasts and, and um, I would marinate them and, and, you know, maybe cook them on the grill or do a do a ptarmigan popper um, mm. just like you would a dove popper. Only only they're they're a little bit bigger so you can get. You know, maybe four or five poppers from one ptarmigan. Yeah, it makes um, and sense. Then, and then I would also I would also marinate the hindquarters in the same marinade, but then I would just grill those by themselves and and eat them off the bone, um, like you would a quail leg or a or a partridge leg. Um, yeah. And 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 really, they're they're a lot like sharp tail or the other prairie grouse where the um, the hindquarters is a little bit lighter than the breast meat, which, right. which you know people find unusual. And um, and ptarmigan don't do a whole lot of walking around, so they're they don't have the sinews the way a pheasant does. Yeah, they're the the hindquarters of a of a uh, our ptarmigan are probably the best thing to eat, I think. That gives us a pretty good overview. Uh, I really appreciate uh, the time. I mean, we've gone a little over an hour and ten minutes, and. Tell people out there if they want to get involved in the Kansas Ringneck Classic, how would they go about doing that? So our, our website is is kansasringneckclassic.com, www.kansasringneckclassic.com. Um, it's an event that, that is not open to the public, but we're always looking for sponsorship. And as a sponsor um, at a certain level, then you can participate in the hunt. This will be the, the ninth year for the event, and, and over the last uh, eight years, we've raised close to a half a million dollars that's gone back to, to wildlife and habitat conservation efforts and, and also uh, getting youth and, and new hunters involved um, in the sport. And so, so it's, 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 a, it's a grassroots deal, all volunteers, um, and after our expenses, everything goes back to, to the effort. So... Look at the website. My information, my contact information is on the website. So we're always looking for, for new sponsors. And, you know, and the other thing is we're just trying to promote um, hunting tourism in, in western Kansas. I'm, I'm fortunate. I usually hunt six or seven different states a season. But it's, it's not because I think those other states are better than Kansas. It just extends my season. You know, I've already 
I shot uh, 10, 10 roosters in North Dakota this last four or five days. I got back Monday, um, but we can't even hunt pheasants in, in Kansas until uh, the 9th of November. So by hunting other states, I have the opportunity to extend my, my hunting seasons. But Northwest Kansas is a great place to come and hunt quail and pheasant and prairie chicken, and, uh, and we'd love to have the guests. I can I can vouch for that. It's a it's a pretty incredible place, and it's also the place where I've seen the singular largest white-tailed deer in my entire life. Like I've seen bigger on television, but we were quail hunting. This was some years back, and this giant, huge thing ambles out of a ditch. I'm like, what the? It had to be a Boone and Crockett deer. I mean, it was it, it was immense. It made the Hartford deer look look small, and it just wasn't seasoned, so he just sort of ambled away and clearly had a calendar yeah they're smart they're it's smart we have big we have big mule deer here in in western kansas as well i mean i, I i've said it before i'm born and raised in colorado but biggest mule deer i've ever seen are, are in the the western plains of kansas all right jim it's been great having you on and i will see you in arizona in december all right appreciate it thank you take it easy thanks again for listening to the hunt gather talk podcast Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Leave a comment in the review section of those platforms because it really helps me a lot. Also, you will see an extensive list of show notes on my website, which is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. You can find that at huntgathercook.com. And be sure to follow me on social media. I am Hunt Gather Cook on Instagram, and there is the Hunt Gather Cook Facebook group. That group is a private group, so be sure when you answer the questions to tell me in those questions that you heard about me on the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I'm Hank Shaw. I'm your host. Thanks again for listening, and I will see you again next week. Hey.